I know, I know, I've been a self-absorbed wanker. I've just had so many things on this mess back in Scotters with your uncle freaking out and your aunt being in pieces. It means I've had to. This isn't about you or them, he snaps, like he's at the end of his tether. His neck is red and his eyes glisten. This startles me. Ben has always been a cool, taciturn lad, more placid Englishman or even stoical Scot than tempestuous Italian. I told you I was seeing somebody. Aye, this wee bird you're knocking off, you sly. It's not a bird. He pauses. It's a bloke. I'm gay. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, if you've been on the train spotting tracks for some time, you will have been wondering whatever happened to Renton, Begbie, Sick Boy and Spud. Now, you might not have heard yet, but some of those questions have been answered finally for us in Dead Men's Trousers, Irvin Welsh's most recent iteration of the train spotting series. Some people find the books they love through reviews, through browsing through bookshops. I find the way that I really find books I love is hearing the authors talk about them, especially live at events. It's the best way to gauge somebody's attitude, somebody's mood, and maybe the kind of book they might write. And I was gutted, as many were, to miss one of Irvin Welsh's most legendary uh, appearances at a festival this year at Spiritland. But never fear, I cranked out the vintage time machine, dragged up the audio from the dredges and depths of the space-time continuum, and have delivered it here to you in your ears so we can all pretend that we were there and we kind of almost met Irvin Welsh. That can still be the story, right? Here is Irvin's conversation with Miranda Sawyer. It's a really light-hearted, funny one. You don't by any means need to know too much about the train spotting series to enjoy it. And there's also a really hilarious extract that Irvin reads right at the end uh, of the episode. So I, I really recommend staying tuned for that. These are two adults having adult conversations. And because of that, you might hear a little bit of adult language. Housekeeping out of the way, here is Irvin and Miranda in conversation. This very day is um, the publication day of uh, Irvin's latest book, which is Dead Man's Trousers, which will be on sale later for you all. He'll sign it. There's also a freebie, which is a kind of little uh, small uh, extract of uh, ecstasy. Not ecstasy, the thing. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Maybe later. Uh, And that's called Rave, and that will be on sale later. But I will remind you at the end of our talk. But um, anyway, Dead Man Trousers, which we're we're, going to talk about at the beginning, is essentially another part of the kind of train spotting saga. So we've got Sick Boy, we've got Begbie, we've got Spud, we've got Renton, and it's a kind of continued adventures, which is what we want. (laughs) So Dead Man's Trousers, we're not going to give away what happens, but would you like to set it up, Irving? Yeah, I mean... um I think this book is, uh, I probably think it's about sort of Twisted Redemption book, really. Um, if you see the first kind of like the, the train spotting, the book is being about like friendship and betrayal. And uh, porno is about being kind of rivalry and revenge. Uh, this one's probably about uh, redemption. It's that kind of nice little sort of arc if you, for all these guys in a way. 
There's still quite a lot of rivalry and revenge. Yeah, there. yeah, there's tons of rivalry <laughs> and revenge. I mean, it's like um, the interesting thing about the, you know, uh, uh, kind of looking at the, the, all these stories back to back, it's like they haven't really been a gang or mates for about kind of 30 odd years. And it's like kind of, um, it kind of resonates with me because um, I've lived out of Edinburgh for most of my adult life. And whenever I go back, if I have an event like, a, you know, a, a book launch or a, a film premiere or some stage kind of thing. I just invite everybody, all my mates along, you know. And I didn't realise that kind of these guys don't actually like each other, a yeah. lot of them now. You know, they've, they've kind of hated each other for years. I mean, it's like kind of um, somebody stabbed somebody's brother back in 1982, somebody kind of shagged somebody's girlfriend in 1997 or something like that, you know. And I think of them as all being big buddies, you know. <laughs> And they're all sitting there kind of scowling at each other and scowling at me. And like, what did you invite that bastard for? Like, what did you bring that cunt along for? And all that. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. So I kind of just basically, I, I, I still do that. I still just invite everybody and leave them to it, basically. And then kind of have a quick drink and then get out. And I was going to say, do you not just sit in the read corner about, and watch read, it go on? Read about the mass arrests and then read the news the next again day. It is interesting, though, that you've let you left essentially. Given that you know, if you if you think about the revisiting of Trainspotting, the most, although it's an international book, really, it's all rooted. There is the the roots are in Edinburgh still, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it's um, the, it's always going to be there, and um, it's like it's it's because I haven't lived there consistently. I mean, I've always been drawn back. I've always gone back for a couple of years at a time. Uh, I've still got a, a flat there, and I go there quite a lot to write. Um, and I've kept, you know, I've just kept up with all the the friendships over the years that I've kind of made there. So I still feel quite connected to it, even though I've not, you know, it's not been my kind of main residence, if you like, for for quite a while now. And um, what do you feel about? I mean, obviously, Trainspotting Two came out last year, was it? The year before? Yeah, yeah, last but year, so last February, yeah, January. Time goes funny for me, but. Um, the the characters are there, the same characters, but the, when you compare them with the books that you've written about the characters, I always, I mean, I love the films. Both of those films, I think, are really brilliant. That they, um, the characters are not as nasty as your books, really, are they? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say they're not quite as dark. I think what you do is um, when you're when you're casting kind of um, difficult characters in a, in a, a movie, you have to cast somebody that people like. You don't want to cast somebody that people don't like as a bastard, basically. You've got to cast an, a nice guy, you know. So it's <laughs> like um, you can have, like, Bruce Robertson and Filth being absolutely horrible, and people will go, ah, it's just James McAvoy acting, though. He's a really, really a nice guy. <laughs> He's so cute. And you get that kind of... Um, and you get, you know, you get that with Ewan McGregor as Renton and all that, and Bobby Carlyle as Begbie. You get a kind of... Um, you get a little bit of a premium, you know, because nobody wants to see somebody that could be you know, really, really kind of sort of, um, could be a bit dodgy playing somebody horrible, you know, and they're, they're kind of, and they think, yeah, they're just like that, basically, right, you know, <laughs> so um, so you, you you have to kind of, um, you have to cast nicer, and it's like film is just a glamorising kind of medium, I mean, p actors look better than real people, that's why they're actors, basically. Yeah, and, and they're no really charismatic, that's why yeah, they do their job. Yeah, and no matter how much you grunge them up, basically, you know, they're always going to look better than the kind of... Um, than their real-life equivalents. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, did you enjoy the films? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, they were both um, both great films in their own way. I mean, um, I kind of... Uh, I mean, I've had five kind of uh, adaptations now, and probably another couple mm. will, will come 
you know, within the, the course of time. But uh, I've kind of, you know, I've enjoyed them all in different ways. They've, yeah. they've been varyingly kind of successful and, and unsuccessful. I think, you know, the um, certainly the two train spotting ones uh, in filth have been very successful. Asset House, um, kind of grungy and cool, but not massively commercial, and Ecstasy, not really a success at all. But um, I've enjoyed working on them all. Yeah. And okay, let's go back to the book. When you uh, think about that you're going to write a book, obviously that you have a created an entire world of different characters that you can visit. When do you know that? When do you feel like it's time to revisit or call back on or recall earlier lives of of the kind of I'm going to call them the train spotting crew. We know who we mean. Um, yeah, you don't. It's funny because um, you don't really. I think if you, if you write um, if you're writing a screenplay or you're uh, if you're writing genre, if you're writing kind of crime or uh, thrillers or uh, you know, I think you get to pick more in a way what you're kind of writing about. If you're if you're writing the kind of stuff that I write, I mean, I tend to let the the subconscious kind of sort of carry the burden basically, and just kind of especially for the first draft, you know, kind of start composing a bit more in subsequent drafts, but the first draft, I basically fire it out. And when you do that, you're kind of a prisoner of um, whatever's lurking in the recesses of your brain at the time. So the book kind of chooses you, the next book, rather than you pick the book, yeah. I don't really want to think about your subconscious, I have to say. Everybody's subconscious <laughs> is terrible. Just some of us have got the balls to get out on fucking paper. <laughs> there's, some, um, there's some great... Uh, Set pieces, I suppose. I mean, is that what you call them? Kind of um, yeah. ev- events or kind of scenes within the, the book, aren't they? Are you the kind of writer that thinks, that hears things maybe when you've met all your friends from Edinburgh and goes and go, okay, they're all, they all hate each other, and you hear things and you think, okay, this might be good or this might be good, or is it genuinely your subconscious coming out? Um, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's a big soup, you know, you don't really, sometimes you think that you've just thought of something original. And then somebody will say, oh, I remember that happened. And you go, oh, fuck, yeah, it did. Um, <laughs> and uh, then you worry, and then you start sweating, and you think somebody, somebody's going to recognise this, this scene or this part or this incident. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, and I think you're always, if you're a, a fiction writer, you're always asking what if, basically. You're saying, well, this happened, that happened. What if, um, what if it wasn't two guys? What if it was two women? What if it was a? Uh, what if it wasn't two young women? What if it was one was an older, one was younger? What if uh, you know? So, so you're kind of trying to sort of um, mix everything up uh, and kind of just ch- you know change it around and see how the, the the kind of narrative and story changes. You know, what if it? Um, you know, what if it wasn't a kind of um, a, uh, a a sort of um, I don't know like um, a, a a plastic duck, but an iron glove, or something like that. You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's a bit. Of this, I'm going to ask you to read in a couple of seconds, but there's a there's a, a kind of format in the middle of the the book which uh, I really enjoyed, which is basically some of the characters take DMT, and there's a kind of format change within the the book that I really enjoyed. Was that to kind of just convey the Maybe we should yeah, explain. Yeah, I mean, I, I got involved in taking DMT last year cause just to sort of um, try it again. I'd taken it, I'd taken it about 10 years ago, and it was very intense, and I thought, I'll take DMT again and just um, to well, kind to of... shift your brain. Yeah, just, well, just to see kind of... Because uh, I was very... I was a bit drunk when I took it the last time, and I thought, I'm not going to take it absolutely sober and straight as it should be taken, kind of almost ritualistically and all that. And uh, a couple of pals and I, a few summers back... Um, 
we took some DMT and uh, it, was, it was incredibly intense and I thought the only way I can do justice to that experience in, um, in literature is to sort of get uh, a good graphic novelist and so I uh, asked Dan McDade if he would, um, who had worked with in the past, if he would kind of do the DMT scenes, the DMT recollections for the characters uh, as a graphic novel. So it turns into a graphic novel. So you've actually got a comic within this book, <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. And um, when you, I know now these these days, obviously as everyone gets older, there's times when you're um, pretty almost sober. You're working out. You're, you know, kind of. Uh, I don't know. I was thinking if you were kind of American. I have my Pilates now in, in yeah, Miami Pilates. Beach. Like, uh, <laughs> um, and then there's time when, times when you're not. How do you pick or move between two? Uh, I mean, but the, the, again, it's like the circumstance picks you. In America, in, in Miami Beach, nice and fit and healthy, kind of Pilates with um, the real housewives of Miami Beach, um, <laughs> uh, boxing in the afternoon, kind of running around, sort of... Um, kind of on the beach and all that kind of stuff. Are you in shorts? Back here, yes, in shorts, kind of. You Sometimes speedos, kind of, with that, with that, <laughs> with, with, that, with, with honey, a honey-scented pheromone spray, kind of. Sounds of great. <laughs> but uh, here it's like kind of, um, it's a white milk bottle skin, the beer gut, and kind of five jumpers, basically, like, you know, shivering away, what my wee walk like. <laughs> And so is it when you're shivering away that you think, okay, never mind the Pilates, I'll just take some DMT? Yeah, well, DMT is not, it's not a hedonistic no, or party group drug, no. like, you know. Um, so it's much more of an experimental thing. And you don't, when you do it, you don't really want to do it again. You think, that mm. was very intense, but I've kind of done that now and let me reflect on this, yeah. And did you have, um, uh, sorry, it seems we've turned into a kind of talk about DMT. We'll move on back to the writing. But did you have kind of uh, flashbacks? That's what everybody seems to have. They, yeah, the, the well, no, I, got, I, had my, I had my little gnomes. That kind of, your little Lego gnomes take you on a little walk and all that. And, um, it's and just I flew, completely <coughs> universal. It I happens to everyone who takes the side of the mountain. I, I, didn't have the, um, I didn't have the last supper experience that a lot of people get. Mm. Like, yeah. There you go. Um, okay, should we do some? Do you, would you like to read a bit from the book? I would love should to read a bit. Yeah. Oh, do you want me to? Should I explain? Okay, yeah, like you, I don't know. You, you explain. You're, you're more. I've not taken it. You're I have more to say, But I'm not like. Me, uh, basically, like, DMT is a kind of. Uh, it's a very strong hallucinogenic, and people take it and go on a trip. And quite often, when they go on this trip, they can't really remember what's happening, but they recall later on, and it tends to come back in flashbacks. You know how I know this? Sean Ryder told me. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, come in flashback, and you break through the matrix, and everybody sees little gnomes or little men, and they tell you the meaning of life. That is the point. That's what happens. And you don't, it's not like, um, unlike acid, it's not, um, you don't really kind of, uh, you actually go to a different place. If you take an acid, it's just a distortion of what's actually there. But with DMT, you go to a different place. They reckon that... Uh, the, it's like when you have a di when you when you die, the pituitary gland opens up. And you reckon that's what the DMT does? It opens that up. So the, the the plus side is, if you take DMT and you use up all your pituitary gland kind of stuff, you might never die. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, this is. I'm going to just do a very short passage because it's just. I'm going to do this one because it's set in London. Um, I read it last night, so apologies if uh, anybody was there last night at the Rio Cinema in Hackney. Um, and it's Sick Boy, and he's kind of reflecting a little bit uh, on what he's done. He's got into a lot of trouble at this stage because he's got a podiatrist brother-in-law, 
and uh, a podiatrist, if, uh, if nobody's, is, is a guy who works on feet. He's a, you know, he's a kind of foot doctor. And um, he gave, he spiked a guy with, with MDMA powder and set him up with this girl and caused, you know, forced him into this situation of infidelity with his, with his own, with his own sister, you know, his own sister's husband. Uh, and then kind of uh, managed to kind of, uh, to, to inadvertently kind of grass him up to his sister by sending him the sex tape that he made with this woman, yeah. So, so she's heartbroken, and now he's, being bla he's also being blackmailed by this guy, Syme, who is uh, a kind of, um, who runs these saunas, these brothels at Edinburgh. So he's, he's, he's down in London running his escort agency, and he's kind of under a bit of pressure, basically. So he's going to meet his son. I emerged from the building site at Tottenham Court Road in a skyward glance shows darkening clouds bunching together. As a sharp chill in the air, as I dig out my phones from the inside pocket of my Hugo Boss leather jacket, all messages to be disregarded, except one from Ben. Just got here, we'll get them in. I've been steadfastly avoiding Edinburgh, but it hasn't been avoiding me. I'm ruining that festive day I put the MDMA powder in that self-indulgent weakling sex cases drink. I couldn't have envisaged that my playful alchemy would have meant fucking months of fielding correspondence from a heartbroken Carlotta in the weaselly brothel keeper Syme. And there's fuck all I can do to bring their boy back from Thailand. Pompous Presbo shit with his fucking round-the-world plane ticket and his career break. It's something I have to do, said the prick in his last ludicrous email before going completely offline, leaving his missus and his son distraught, punishing them for his nefarious deeds. What a cunt. I fight through the blocked-off roads into Soho. The IRA or ISIS never created anything like as much chaos and demoralization in London as the neoliberal planet rapists with their corporate vanity construction projects. Sure enough, a steady rain is beginning to fall in cold splatters. My son has asked me to meet him for a drink in a public house of zero repute, a bland haunt of office workers and tourists. It dawns on me that I've spent practically no time with him recently. I'm feeling guilty as I enter the busy bar. He's already gotten the seat at the corner where two pints of Stella fizz on a wooden table. We are close to an imitation fire with a low grate. A pleasing smell of polish fills the air. We exchange, we exchange greetings and Ben, who looks troubled, suddenly fixes me in a gaze. Dad, there's something I need to say to you. I know, I know, I've been a self-absorbed wanker. I've just had so many things on this mess back in Scotters with your uncle freaking out and your aunt being in pieces. It means I've had to... This isn't about you! All them, he snaps, like he's at the end of his tether. His neck is red and his eyes glisten. This startles me. Ben has always been a cool, taciturn lad, more placid Englishman or even stoical Scot than tempestuous Italian. I told you I was seeing somebody. Aye, this wee bird you're knocking off, you slight. It's not a bird. He pauses. It's a bloke. I'm gay. I have a boyfriend. 
and he spits a word out, indicating how he resolves a certain issue I now presume he has to contend regularly with. <laughs> He's looking at me in a, with a belligerent, counter-aggressive set to his chin, as if he expects me to freak out and give him the shit he probably got for these cunts down in Surrey. But all I feel is a warm, relieved glow. Well, I never saw this coming, I'm absolutely delighted, as I've always secretly hoped for a gay son. I would have hated to have had that heterosexual shagger competitive thing that my dad had with me. Excellent! I was saying, this is great, I've got a gay son, good on you, bud. I punch his arm. He looks at me in shock, his brow is rising. You, you're not upset. I jab a finger at him. We're talking gay. Totally gay, not bi, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm only into guys, not, not girls at all. Fucking brilliant, this is the best news ever. Cheers. I raise a glass in toast. He looks flabbergasted, but clinks it with his own. I thought you'd, well, I take a gulp of Stella back, smacking my lips together. I would probably have been a bit jealous if you were bi, as you'd have more shagging options than me, I explain. <laughs> you see, I always wanted to be bisexual. Could never get on with men, though. Although I do like a lassie to put a strap on and give it to me up there. <laughs> Dad, Dad! I'm delighted you're taking this so well, but I don't want to hear all this stuff. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, but it's no skin off my nose. We're Hull versus Wasps, different codes, Union versus League. You're not likely to bring in some hot, wee, torpedo-titted vixen to make me jealous like I did with my father. Now, what about the Surrey people? Mum's pretty upset and Gran's just inconsolable. She can barely bring herself to look at me, he says, genuinely saddened. I shake my head slowly in disgust as old bile dredged up ferments in my gut. Fucking old boiler! Wasn't he shy about taking a Joko Aitai portion back in that Tuscan holiday, yet would deny her first grandchild the same fucking pleasure? Fuck these bigots. It's the 21st century. I don't care who you shag, as long as you shag with a vengeance. <laughs> his face lights up at that one. Oh, we do in every conceivable way. I'm moving into his flat in Tufnell Park. Already the neighbours have been complaining about the noise. That's my boy! I punch his arm affectionately again. Right, you fucking raving arse bandit, up to that bar and make mine a double McCallans. <laughs> he complies and we both end up in a bit of a state. My son is gay. What a fucking blessing. Thank you for listening, folks. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Do seek out Dead Men's Trousers by Irvin Welsh. It's a good one, as if you need telling after an extract like that. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode of Vintage Books. We've got some really exciting episodes coming up. If you like the podcast and you want other people to discover it, do tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Music.